Before we begin, let me say that a few years ago, I actually preached on this passage. And because this subject comes up all the time, I thought I might preach on this passage again. So I pulled that old sermon out, and I really didn't like it at all. I didn't think it was very clear, and uh, I was very critical of my own sermon. So I decided to put together a new one, put it on PowerPoint, and maybe it would be a little easier to understand, perhaps less confusing, on a subject that's very much misunderstood today among people that follow or study the Bible. There are three erroneous positions that come from this passage, and they are these. Number one, that Jesus, after his death and before his resurrection on the third day, descended down into the Hadean realm and preached to the departed spirits that were there. That's number one. A second erroneous position is this, that Jesus, after his death and before his resurrection on the third day, preached only to the disobedient spirits of those who lived before the flood. And third, we find that Jesus, after his death and before his resurrection on the third day, descended down into Hades as a ceremonial proclamation, whether that was literal or figurative. And undoubtedly, there are variations of these three arguments. But let's first take a historical look at this idea or where these positions actually came from. I tried to go back beyond this, and I cannot find anyone before this, but according to Alexander Campbell, there was a preacher by the name of Jesse B. Ferguson in 1844. And may I say before we go any further, this man is a perfect example of what happens when a preacher is good, what happens when a preacher is well-known, and what happens when a preacher is well-liked. This is what happens when a man like that deters or drifts into error. 1844, Jesse B. Ferguson. In 1 Peter chapter 3, and verses 19 and 20, he was the first one to take into consideration a sectarian view of this passage. The passage reads this, By whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. His conclusion was simply this, that Jesus preached to those in Hades while he was dead figuratively or dead physically. You know, Alexander Campbell wrote this. I thought it was very interesting. Alexander Campbell described this man and he said, you know, he was a man that worked with a church in Nashville, Tennessee. Alexander Campbell said that that church was made up of Nashville's elite. In fact, from the preaching of Jesse Ferguson the congregation literally exploded into several hundred members. Now, notice what happens, though, when you leave what is right. This is, according to Alexander Campbell, this is a direct quote. I'm going to put on there what he called him and what he actually said. He said, Brother Ferguson's official position, here it is, that Jesus Christ, in or by his spiritual nature, did, after his death, actually and personally descend into Hades, usually called hell, the invisible world of wicked spirits embracing both anti- and post-diluvian. By the way, that's a fancy way of saying before and after the flood. Both anti- and post-diluvian. But especially in the case before us, to preach the gospel to all the dead, not those in the flesh, but actually to spirits then in prison, 
Indeed, he says he preached to the imprisoned dead as his congregation. Alexander Campbell wrote, I wish he would have kept it to himself. Let me tell you what happened. Hey, a congregation in size of several hundred, this is what happened as a result. After Jesse Ferguson, and I quote, finished teaching people his erroneous views about the spirits in prison, the church was virtually destroyed. When others went in to try to restore the church, less than 60 members could be found who were willing to worship together. And by that time, Brother Ferguson was an avowed universalist. Now, what's that mean? A universalist is somebody that believes that no matter what you do in life, no matter how good or how bad you are, no matter what you practice, no matter what you do, it doesn't really matter because in the end, eventually, everybody's going to heaven. That's a universalist. In fact, that, that suits and fits Roman, Catholic, uh, Roman Catholicism in their doctrine of purgatory. Several years ago, there was a, a gentleman, he has now passed on, and uh, I was talking to him on a job site. He was the father of a general contractor that we were painting that house. And I was talking to him about stuff, and all of a sudden he said, now wait a minute, it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, he liked to cuss like a sailor, and he liked to do whatever he wanted to do. He said, it doesn't really matter what, you, what we do, because we're all going to the halfway house anyway. In other words, we're going to go and serve whatever sentence we have to serve after this life. But in the end, in the end, it's going to be okay because everybody's going to make it. That's a universalist. Very dangerous. And may I say this too? If it doesn't matter, please get this. If it doesn't matter what I do, one way or the other, that eventually I'm going to make heaven. I could have teed off at River Lakes this morning about 8 a.m., I could have done all manner of things today. My point is, if it doesn't matter, why bother? If nothing in our life matters what we do, and everybody's going to be saved anyway, then why, why bother? This man was a avowed universalist. He went on further to say this, but as is often the case, those who are in the process of changing from truth to error leave behind a twisted trail of division. So I think it's obvious that everybody here understands that I am saying Jesus did not go down to the place of disembodied spirits and preach to them. But let's just do this. Let's set that conclusion aside and let's, for sake of argument, let's say that he did. Let's say that's exactly what the passage means. Here's my question What did he preach? If he actually did that, what did he preach? If Jesus went into Hades and preached to anyone at that time, what did he preach? Did he preach the gospel to them? What benefit could it be that Jesus would preach a message of salvation to people that were already dead? What did he preach? Also this too. Why would he preach something about a message of salvation for change when in Hades you don't have the option of changing your status at all? If they could, it certainly supports Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory beautifully. So, what does the Bible say? In John chapter 9, I love that narrative there where Jesus heals the man that was born blind. And I'm not going to go into that story. We all know what happens. He sends him down to the pool of Siloam. He washes the clay from his eyes and he is healed. And now he can see. What I want to do is I want to go back before that and notice two verses. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. 
This is what he said. In John 9 verses 4 and 5, what did Jesus say? I must work the works of him, that's God, who sent me, that's Jesus, while it is day. In other words, there's a time for me to work. The night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When is Jesus the light of the world himself preaching personally? When he's in the world. Because there comes a time when nobody can work. He calls that nighttime. So preaching, folks, is done to the living. Notice what else? How about this? 2 Corinthians 6 and 2. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Talking about in this life. Let's go a step further. What happens after this? What happens after this? Hebrews 9.27 And as it is appointed to man once to die, but after this the judgment. So, what does this mean? It means that preaching and changes have to be done when a person is alive. According to this, in John chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, preaching is done in this life. According to 1 Corinthians 6 and 2, obedience is also done in this life. Furthermore, I'm going to put something on here that is extremely encouraging. I'm going to let it sit on there for a minute. You know what this means? This means that when you die, if you die in a saved condition, you will never be lost. We always talk about the flip side of that. We'll do that too. But from a negative standpoint. What about a positive standpoint? What about this? What about when I draw my last breath and I pass from this life and I have died in a saved condition? What about all of our loved ones that we have loved and lost that died in Christ faithfully unto death? You know what? They will never be lost. Ever. Okay? Stay with me. Here's the flip side of that. We've got to put it up there. If that is the case and those that die in a saved condition will never be lost, then it also is the case that those that die in a lost condition can never be saved. Remember this. After this life is the judgment. You know what that means? That means there's no second chance. It means there's no second chance. It means that I can't go somewhere and pay some sort of a sentence somewhere in a spiritual world and have somebody pray me out of there and someday I get to get out. There is no second chance. Here's the point. It's to be done in this life. Preaching is done in this life. Obedience is done in this life. What's next? The judgment. If I die in a safe condition, I'm never lost. If I die in a lost condition, I will never be saved. Okay, let's talk about the Hadean realm now for just a minute. In the Hadean realm, we understand this. Now, by the way, when we talk about Hadean realm, I'm just talking about the place where you go when you die. And everybody that dies goes to the Hadean realm. In fact, when a person dies and they die in Christ... Sometimes people think they went to heaven. They didn't go to heaven because there needs to be the judgment. And the judgment is a sentencing day, not necessarily a judgment day. Our life is the trial. At the point of death, we're either guilty or not guilty. And when Jesus comes back and those that are saved long for that return, guess what? We get our entrance into the everlasting kingdom, not barely, not squeaking by, but we have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. Great stuff. On the other hand, those that die lost, 
or in a lost condition. They go to the Hadean realm too. But they go to another place in the Hadean realm. And at the time of Christ, when Jesus comes back, their sentence will be in hell, according to the scriptures. Not me. Didn't make that up. All right, so let's talk about some impossibilities. Impossibilities in the Hadean realm. The Bible talks about the fact that there is an impassable gulf that is between them. And may I say, I'll just call the names out and I'm going to prove it to you. On one side, the place where saved people go, it's called paradise. On the other side, it's where lost people go. And we call that Tartarus, even though you can't read that English word in uh, our translations in this passage. I'm going to prove to you that's exactly what the word is. All right. In Luke chapter 16. Now, this is a very familiar passage. And it's the rich man and Lazarus, right? So you got the rich man and you got Lazarus. The rich man fared sumptuously day by day, but Lazarus was a beggar. And all he wanted was the crumbs that fell from the master's table like some dog somewhere. So he had a terrible life. He had an awful life. They both die. Now, sometimes scholars say that this is not a true-to-life narrative, and some say that it's a parable. I'm saying this. I believe it is a true-to-life narrative, and this is the reason. In all the parables of Jesus, Jesus never mentioned anybody's name. But here he mentions a name. He says a certain rich man, and he says Lazarus, a specific person. And he mentions the name of Abraham and calls the place Abraham's bosom or the place of comfort. All that being said, it doesn't matter. Here's why. If it's a parable, a parable is a laying alongside. In other words, something from the physical realm, laying it alongside something of the spiritual realm or spiritual idea. And they both had to be true. All parables were true. And for a parable to be true, has to be true on the physical side as well as on the spiritual side. All right. All parables were true. So, guess what? If this is a true-to-life narrative, it is what already has been. And if it's a parable, it is what will be. It doesn't matter. So here we go. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. I like what Joe Heisel said, I don't know, 20 years ago I heard him say this from the pulpit. I believe it was here at Plans Road. And Joe Heisel said, you know, I just think somehow, some way, when I cross over and it comes my time to leave this world, I think I'm not going to be afraid. And he referred to this phrase right here. Don't you think it just might be one of the angels that take you to Abraham's bosom and you're not afraid? You cross the chilly waters of death. But like this man that was saved, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. But then there was the rich man. He also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, I've highlighted this word for a reason. This word Hades is translated also in the King James Version as hell. What that is, that's the English version of the Greek word Tartarus. So if anybody ever wonders where you get Tartarus, it's this word right here. It's the same word that's found when it talks about uh, Satan and a third of the host of heaven were cast out of heaven and cast down to hell or Hades. It's Tartarus. In other words, that's where lost people go. They go to Tartarus. Watch what happens. He lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off 
and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, I ha have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Now I got to tell you, I know that whatever pain he was feeling, I can't relate to because we live in the physical realm still. So when I think about thirsty, I think about being physically thirsty. When I think about pain, I think of physical pain. This is a spiritual world or a spiritual realm. So I don't know specifically what all that means. All I know is he knew he was lost. He knew he was in torment. And he wanted Lazarus, just tip the tip of your finger in water. Just put that on my tongue. Let's go further. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And notice, talking about the impossibilities in the Hadean realm. And beside this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. This impassable uh, gulf here. This great gulf. A.T. Robertson says it's a permanent chasm. A.B. Bruce says its location is fixed and final. You know what that means? It's impossible to go from one side to the other. Where did Jesus go? What about those beautiful words when Jesus was on the cross and that thief says to him, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Where was Jesus? He was on the other side of the gulf fixed. He was over there where Lazarus went. He was over there at Abraham's bosom. He was over there with all of the redeemed waiting for the second coming of Christ. All of those that were doing that, that's where Jesus was. The rich man, he was on the other side where Satan and a third of the host of heaven are. Chains of darkness waiting the resurrection. So, the thief went to paradise. Are there wicked people there too? No. The wicked rich man was on the other side of the gulf, the impossible uh, place to cross. Jesus goes to the Hadean realm of the of paradise where the righteous go. So here's my point. There's no reason to preach to those that are in paradise and no way to preach to those that weren't. By the way, did the righteous need to be preached to? Nope. They made it. They made it. Did the wicked need to be preached to? Sure, but it's too late. So the righteous don't need preaching in that realm and the wicked can't get it. It's too late. According to this, because there's a great gulf fixed. So summing up so far, stay with me. Number one, Jesus did not preach to anyone in Hades pre or post-Diluvian, before or after the flood, as his congregation, which is the doctrine of supported by universalism. Number two, Jesus did not preach to the disobedient in the days of Noah after he died. Three, this passage does not mean that when he died, his proclamation was so great that it even reached hell. Do you know why? Because those that were saved knew they were saved. And those that were lost knew they were lost. No proclamation. You know, there's something kind of sobering about that. It's wonderful on one hand. But it's also very sobering. You know what it is? 
The second that I die, the very second that I die, if I die in a saved condition, I'm going to know I'm saved. But if I die in a lost condition, I'm going to know I'm lost. There's no proclamation necessary, folks. You know you're saved and you know you're lost. Okay. So, all that being said, what does the passage mean? I just told you everything that it doesn't mean. What does the passage actually mean? Let's look at it from this perspective. Let's look at the passage again on the screen. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. There are two key phrases in here. Watch. One, it was in the days of Noah. And two, it was while the ark was being prepared. So in other words, there's the time frame. It was in the days of Noah. And number two, it was while the ark was being prepared. And incidentally, it took 120 years to build that thing. We're talking about preaching that was done in that time period. Now, here are some identifying characteristics and considerations. Here they are. Number one, they were spirits that lived during the days of Noah. Number two, Specifically, there were those that were disobedient during the 120 years that the ark was being prepared. Three, they were taught while Noah was building the ark. Four, therefore they were disobedient during the time that the ark was being built. And number five, and finally, Jesus Christ's spirit was involved. All of those considerations are true. So, okay, all right. Well, the question is, This is so simple. I'm going to tell you something, folks. This is so simple. It takes a preacher to foul this up. This is so simple. This is how. Very, very easy to understand. Jesus Christ, in his spirit and not in the flesh, during the days of Noah, proclaimed God's truth to evil people pre-flood generation. And he did so through Noah, a preacher of righteousness. He had a preacher do it. He had a man do it. That's what he did. Let me talk about the preacher of righteousness. 2 Peter 2 and verse 5. More about Noah. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah the eight and eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the un. Godly. That's very key to explaining 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. All it was is this. Jesus Christ in spirit, through Noah, preached to people that were alive. Did you get that? They were alive. What have we already established? Jesus says, I got to do it during the day. I got to do my preaching. I got to do my work during the day. Because there's going to come a time when nighttime comes and no man can work, right? So the preaching was done in the day. Also, Paul said to those at Corinth, obedience is now in the day. So, so when Jesus Christ, through Noah, preached to evil people, they were alive on the earth. But I want to notice this passage right here. This, this shows about the spirit of Jesus Christ in a preacher that was living. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully 
who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, the Spirit of Christ was also in those Old Testament prophets too, just like in Noah, a preacher of righteousness. So, when Christ through Noah preached to those evil people, they were alive on the earth. But at the time that Peter wrote the letter, they were long dead, and their spirits were suffering in the prison of hell known as Tartarus. Do you know what this is called? This is called a prolepsis. Let me paraphrase it this way. Christ was made alive in the spirit, and in the spirit during the days of Noah, he preached to evil people whose spirits are now in the prison of Tartarus punishment. This is called a prolepsis. What in the world is that? What's a prolepsis? A prolepsis involves bringing two time frames together into one expression. Let me give you an example. President Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky. Was he president when he was born? No. But it's bringing two time frames or two eras together in one expression involving that. President Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky. In other words, that is a prolepsis. Now, it's a common mode of expression that associates a current fact with a prior or antecedent event. And with reference to 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, the preaching was done by Christ in spirit through a preacher that was alive named Noah in ancient times to living people. And at the time of the writing, though, they were not alive. But let's furthermore go on. What about 1 Peter 4 and 6? And the reason I wanted to talk about this is because this is a passage that's often misunderstood and misapplied. And in doing so, the passage itself has been used to support the idea of baptism by proxy. In other words, it doesn't matter. You're dead. You're gone. But somebody that's living, that's wonderful, that loves you, they can be baptized for the dead. There are religious persuasions that believe that. In other words, something on the physical realm can be done for somebody on the spiritual side. So, that's this verse here. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 6 says, For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. What is that? It's a prolepsis. The gospel was preached to the living, but at the time of the writing, they were dead. Regarding prison, regarding this idea of prison, Burton Kaufman said this, there's not a line in the passage that requires us to believe that Jesus Christ preached personally to those spirits during the three days that he laid in the tomb. Folks, that's a misunderstanding of the passage. And if that's not the case, what do you preach? Those on the safe side, that's where Jesus was. You can't get across to preach to those that are on the lost side. So, in conclusion, in conclusion, I'll just sum it up again. This passage means this. That Jesus Christ, by his spirit in Noah, preached through Noah a preacher. To people who were living during the days of Noah. 
while the ark was being prepared for the 120 years and while those people were still alive. But at the time of Peter's writing, they were in the prison of Tartarus. And you know what, folks? They are still there today waiting for the judgment. As it's appointed that a man wants to die, but after this, the judgment. You know, it is not uncommon or it's not hard or far-fetched to understand and believe that the Lord works through people. In fact, if you stop and consider the word of God, consider this, please. We have, as one preacher said one time, we have the power of God in the hands of man. In other words, Jesus is not going to work on people directly, miraculously, neither is God nor the Holy Spirit. The only way that people can make changes in their life, according to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, is to make them personally by way of choice while they're still living. And during the time that you're still living, you can make all manner of changes. You can change for the rest of your life. In fact, I'll tell you this right now. This is the greatest thing in the world is about being a Christian. You know why? Because it's the only thing that I'm aware of that you can mess up constantly and be forgiven and change your life over and over again. I don't know any other thing like that. You know what happens in a job like that? They go fired. Fired. You know what happens if you do that in school? F, kicked out. But with God, you can change your life as long as you're alive. And those people in the days of Noah during that 120 years while a preacher was preaching to them had a chance and a choice and they chose not. So only eight souls were saved. What we do with the word of God, folks, is we take the word of God to those that are living and lost and need it. And they have to make the choice to make the change. So Jesus didn't preach when he died. It's a prolepsis combining two time frames of when those people were living. But at the time of the writing in, second, in, in Peter, at the time of the writing, they had already died. 